Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Nasir Ahmed. Nasir is the CEO of Ultrasound Care Scanning Services, the diagnostic and clinical wing of Pika Baby Ultrasound Services based in Birmingham and London. Nasir, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on the topic of leadership. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you? I think uh, leadership and the word leader is stems from how somebody takes care of the organization which they are leading, taking the initiative, being proactive in in the face of uh, challenges, typically the kind of challenges which we have, which the entire world and indeed the UK has faced during the last few months of uh, COVID-19 and to be able to um, manage your activities, your businesses, and keeping the economy going as much as one can in their own individual uh, capacity and moving forward and uh, coping with those challenges, um, tackling them as best as one could. And that is part of the leadership to make strategies uh, and evolve strategies out of these challenges. And when we think of leadership, we often think of management as being separate to leadership. But I think people management especially is a fundamental part of being a leader in a certain way. So if we think about people management um, in the context of yourself and of um, ultrasound care scanning services for a moment, Nasir, how would you say you like to work with your colleagues? I think in, in, in terms of the, the current uh, pandemic, crisis in the in the world and in, in our industry and in country as well uh, people management is just part of the leadership mm. the leadership requires to be uh, a more uh, encompassing all aspects of business not just the people management um, it, within that it comes uh, actual financial um, cash flow and uh, the, the keeping the finances going of the of the, of the business during this difficult times during the lockdown times and also managing your staff, managing the people to be able to <clears throat> make sure that they are safe and they are uh, those who you require to work are available to work safely either in our industry, in our particular business, it can't be work from home because we, we have to be present at the clinics. Mm. But um, making sure that uh, we provide a safe and um, and a comfortable environment for not only the our staff but also for the patients who visit our clinics and during this time we've seen a real focus on things such as mental health and well-being as being critically important so from a staff point of view 
how would you say that they have adapted to this uh, current situation? Um, have they um, coped quite well with it, um, do you think, uh, from your point of view or from a leadership perspective? Has it sometimes taken a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of motivation just to keep things ticking over in that sense? Because I can imagine with some people amid the worry and the uncertainty, it can be difficult to encourage them to continue working on site, can't it, given the risks? I think it is a very important point of, of uh, mental health during times like this. Uh, I mean, in our business, we've had um, occasions when some of the staff, particularly we have some single mothers who are working for us, who had to go through some very difficult times in terms of child uh, child care and and then playing around with the with the uh, being availability uh, being available for work and managing things at home with the <clears throat> with, with, with the children being at home as well. So those are the things which can which can cause quite a great deal of stress, mental stress as well, to people. We have been providing uh, all the support we could to the staff which were suffering or which were going through those kind of circumstances, in terms of offering all the help we could, and then being flexible. Because in our business, we once the lo- lockdown started. The, because uh, some parts of our scanning are essential or are categorized as essential and some parts are not, like 4D scanning and photographic side of the scanning mm. is not really essential for health. Whereas um, certain parts like uh, obstetrics, when an expecting mother needs to have a anomaly scan, they have to have certain well-being scans and reassurance scans to see that the well-being of the baby and everything is going fine. Those are the essential scans which we have been conducting. Um, again, the certain uh, diagnostic scans for men and women whereby they are referred um, by their GP or, or their uh, medical practitioner to have an ultrasound scan that is time-related, again, and also obstetrics, the pregnancy scans are time-related, they are time-sensitive, they have to be conducted within certain periods of time uh, at a certain stage of the pregnancy. So we continue to conduct those scans and provide that essential service to people who need it during these times, especially these times when um, the, the NHS had a huge amount of burden on itself uh, because of the COVID patients, uh, we thought that we can provide whatever service we could uh, and put ourselves up on the front, including our staff uh, who were, as I say, themselves going through certain difficult um, times because of uh, single mothers who work for us with children, etc. But yet they, they offered their services purely to be able to provide that service to the customers, to the patients uh, in these difficult times. And that's how we have, we have been able to support those, those those members of the staff as well. And um, considering that there's been a great deal of debate over the clarity and transparency of government guidelines during this time and indeed guidelines for the future as things begin to reopen again, two very important elements of leadership, of course, clarity, transparency. Um, I was wondering, uh, Nasir, have you been satisfied, given that you're providing essential services, that you've understood during this time what has been expected of you to continue to operate safely and that you continue to be satisfied with those guidelines going forward and that they're clear enough? 
I think that certain amount of ambiguity that not that wasn't only in UK. If we look at around the world, I can see, and I when I I, I see different parts of the world, and and, and uh, I have connections in different parts of the world. That particular uh, or, or certain extent of ambiguity has existed everywhere uh, in all governments. In you look at uh, United States, you look at uh, even uh, other countries within Europe uh, and some Asian countries. People everywhere have been complaining about the clarity of instructions. It is because, to some extent, that the world has not seen this or they have not gone gone through this kind of um, pandemic and this kind of situation before. So, albeit that all governments, they on one hand, they wanted to make sure that... Uh, they carried out everything safely and they provided safe environment and they took necessary steps to ensure the safety and and then and stoppage of the spread of uh, infection. Yet, they are extremely concerned about the ongoing economy of, of their respective country and UK falls within that same um, category that the government had all the desire and all the, all the wish to make sure that the environment was safe for for the public, and they took the steps to to to, to and they wanted to take all the steps to make sure that uh, the spread is uh, limited as much as possible. Yet, at the back of the mind, I'm sure that they had um, the economy of the country on, on the forefront as well. That how to balance that 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 uh, delicate balance. I think that created to some extent some ambiguity. But in our particular um, case, I think we we took quite we were quite um, unambiguous about the whole uh, process as far as our business was concerned. Mm. We made sure that we provided <clears throat> only the essential services, only the essential scans, which were which one would think that is required by a certain person as a, either a patient or or going through the pregnancy, which is. Again, as I say, time sensitive. And second thing was that we took steps to make sure that we provide a safe environment, maintaining the social distance between between the the, the people who are working and 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 the patients who come in, and taking all the necessary steps of providing um, the, the the antibacterial uh, routines, etc. The cleanliness and um, all, all those um, measures which were taken to ensure that it was a safe and uh, <clears throat> clean environment provided to the customers. Um, that is that that's how we overcame that um, alleged ambiguity in the, in the in the instructions from the government. And if we now think about what the future, immediate future might hold in Asir over the next year or so for yourself and for ultrasound care scanning services, what do you envision and what do you hope to achieve as we move hopefully through the pandemic during that time and emerge into this new normal and really begin to adapt to that and what that might bring? Scott, I think this is, this is a very important point because this is not, it's not something which is going to go away next month or the month mm. after or the month after. We are going to be living with this, uh, these conditions and this environment for some time to come. 
so it is the adaptability. We are we have adopted our business practices to ensure that those practices are uh, are, are uh, implementable for a foreseeable future and they are not just temporary. We have reduced the number of uh, people who accompany the patients. We at one time <clears throat> prior to COVID. We used to allow five people, up to five people, to come with the patient, and including children. <clears throat> but um, since since this um, pandemic, we are limiting that to one person only, and not no children allowed. We are <clears throat> making sure that um, the, the the various utensils and, and and magazines and things like that, which and then even the children's toys have been taken away from the play area of the children. And things like that. So those those are the measures which we had to take uh, to ensure that we comply with not only the government regulations but also the uh, the, the general safety of, of of customers and staff as well. Um, and those measures are going to be in place as for now they will be almost permanent for a foreseeable future, unless and until we see that there is the there is a vaccine, <clears throat> and um, and then the, the 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 pandemic is completely over and done with. Until then, those measures will have to remain in place, and that's how I see. Uh, I think um, again, one thing, one one effect on the business has been and will be for a foreseeable future that the number of appointments which we used to book, say. Uh, in an hour or or in, an, in a half day will be reduced by about fifteen to twenty percent um, purely in order to keep the social distance and not to have too many people in the clinics at any one time. So that is one aspect which is going to affect the finances of the business. But we have to make sure that that is the price we have to pay for everybody's safety. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how things do change over the uh, the month sermon to come, really. And I think, you know, uh, Nasir, given how informative it's been discussing some of these issues today, even though we're just about out of time on today's programme, it would be great to actually catch up at some point in the next year and discuss exactly what has changed and how the new normal is shaping up to be, because it's all well and good speculating at this present time. But it's another thing entirely having the opportunity to look back and really analyse exactly what's changed. Certainly, absolutely. That that That'll be I think that's when, in, in, in coming months, and then and, and probably by the start of the next year, we will see a little bit more uh, practically where we are, where the world is, where the economy is, where the these, uh, how where the pandemic is basically, and how we are coping with it, and uh, the 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 steps which have been taken generally. Um, how far they are working and whether to improve them or whether to to, to ease them off. Mm, that's exactly it. Um, it's about, of course, managing the easing of lockdown restrictions and maybe having right. to retighten rules in an effective manner, depending on how the uh, the virus is developing. Of course, and I think um, it's important to note that even though, of course. There's plenty of time uh, to go, I'm sure, until we uh, touch base again, uh, Nasir. It's important to continue to take care and stay safe and also stay home where you can because we're certainly not out of the woods yet, are we? And there's plenty of time for things to change one way or the other. 
Absolutely. This is this is an evolving situation, basically. As I say, none of us have been through um, this kind of a situation before. So um, we'll have to see, and the government will have to see, and indeed the, the, the organizations like NHS and, and, and the businesses will have to see how the circumstances change, what evolves out of this um, pandemic, and indeed the effect of any, and the possibility of any vaccine, and what effect it has. And that's how the businesses will have to adapt and change accordingly as we go along. Mm. Now, see, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us uh, today, and I thank you again for taking the uh, the time to join us. It's a shame we don't have more time. We could discuss these issues long into the afternoon, I'm sure. And as I said, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime until we speak again. Thank you very much. That was Nasir Ahmed speaking, the CEO of Ultrasound Care Scanning Services. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew, who's now retired from professional playing cricket, um, has now um, become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his time as England skipper, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. During that time he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an england skipper in history quite impressive and i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking with him that is coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb Sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out 
literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one, drawing that game at the Oval to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and 
to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh, having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I have with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer, and for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.